this is almost a cliche, but if you keep putting people on pedestals, they can only look down on you. But if you keep treating them like people, then they'll treat you like a person back. Welcome to Stand Out, Get Noticed, the podcast that helps you speak and present with rock star confidence. I'm Christina Cantors, your host and founder of The C Method Communication Skills Training. For free resources and to subscribe to the show, visit thecmethod.com. Hey there, Rockstar, and welcome to episode 96 of Stand Out, Get Noticed. Christina with you here, and you might be wondering, why is her voice all husky? Well, it's because I just got back from the Rainbow Serpent Festival yesterday, which was a five-day festival of music, arts, and culture, and I spent a lot of time dancing, talking to people, hanging out, and inhaling a lot of dust. It was like a real dusty bowl there. <laughs> so I'm kind of lost my voice, but I'm I'm glad I still have something left to record this for you guys. But anyway, I'm not going to talk too much. I'm just going to get straight into it. So I have a phenomenal guest for you this week. His name is Joshua Spodek, and he is not your average leadership coach and trainer. He is passionate about teaching his students practical exercises that they can implement to learn by doing. And in this conversation, I learned some fascinating ways to lead and influence through being radically authentic. And speaking with authenticity is a big thing that Joshua is really passionate about. And I particularly love this topic because authenticity is a, is a huge value of mine. And, and I really do everything I can in order to be authentic. And I can really tell when someone's not being authentic. And I, and I connect with other people who, who really are themselves and don't, and feel free to express themselves in a really authentic way. So I really loved talking about this. And we also talk about how to master a skill. Joshua's had a lot of success in a variety of things throughout his life, which you'll find out during the conversation. So I wanted to hear about how do you know when you found your one thing and is it okay to do more than one thing and still be successful? So listen in. We also talk about that. Now, he, uh, Joshua mentions quite a few links, so to make it easy for you, I'm going to put them all into the show notes at thecmethod.com slash Joshua. That's thecmethod.com slash Joshua. Alrighty, let's get to it. Let's meet the wonderful Joshua Spodek. Now, Josh, I don't normally read people's bios during the interview, but you're a particularly remarkable human, so I'm going to share with the listeners some of your achievements, if that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so you hold five Ivy League degrees, including a PhD in astrophysics. You helped build an X-ray observational satellite orbiting the Earth with NASA. You invented a technology to show motion pictures to subway riders moving between stations, which has now grown into a worldwide phenomenon. You've taught art at Parsons, the new school for design, and you're also an artist, having shown public art installations in New York City, and Amsterdam, and you've won awards for design work as well. You've lectured on North Korean strategy at Columbia University and in South Korea and China. And now you're a leadership and executive coach for Columbia Business School's program on social intelligence while also running seminars in leadership, creativity, sales, strategy. Not to mention you've finished six marathons, you've swum across the Hudson River, You've been doing burpees daily for over six years. You've written thousands of blog posts. What do you think to yourself when you consider the extent of all of these achievements? 
Well, at, at this particular time, all of it was building up to what I'm doing now. I, you know, I've always done what I felt was the best thing to do at the time. And over the years, as I've done more and more different things, I mean, I do everything. When I did, when I studied physics, I loved physics. Oh, well, I still love physics. I just don't like the life of being a researcher. And I took it as far as I could until I stopped loving it and I found something that I loved more, which became being an entrepreneur. And everything that I do, at the time that I do it, I think is the best thing that I could do. And I'm open to something better coming along. And when something better comes along, I will do that. You know, I, I don't leave people in the lurch. Of course, I, I, I see things through to as far completion as I can and pass them off if I can. And in this case now, the leadership stuff that I'm doing and the book coming out and the courses, it checks off more boxes than anything before. So I've, I've just always been finding my passions more by doing the things that I do. And nowhere along those lines have I felt compelled to work at a large company and start at the ground floor and work my way up over a career to get a gold watch at the end. So that, that doesn't fit in there of like going through a big bureaucracy. And I think that takes a lot of time for a lot of people that they could be doing things like, I don't know, swimming across the Hudson River. Well, a lot of advice I hear for being successful is to focus on one thing and to make that your thing, your speciality. You have obviously done a lot of different things and excelled at them as well. So what's, what are your thoughts on this one thing approach to being successful? I agree. And there was definitely, there was a few years ago when I was, uh, I had a year away and at the time I had my subway business. That's what I was doing. I was uh, helping build the subway business in China and I was making my art. And man, when you go in China and you say, I had a gallery show in New York city, like they're like, Oh, you're real. You're serious. Even though I didn't, I mean, in New York, it was a small lower East side gallery and then another one in Queens. And that's not like really center of the world stuff. But that was really cool. And then I had my leadership stuff. And I was kind of waiting for the world to tell me, this is the thing you should do. I was waiting for a big break in one of those things. And I was doing pretty well in each. And there's some words that I, I think I came up with these, which is you have to say no to a lot of good things to have a great life. And it was really difficult. But that was my most recent time when I said, I'm not interested in being pretty good at three things. I want to be excellent, world-class in one thing. And so at that time, I did say, I'm not, I will, I'll respond to calls and I'll do stuff with the old subway business. I'll respond to calls and I'll act on things that other people initiate with the art, but I will initiate and take responsibility in leadership. And that's where I'm going to put everything into. Now, there's still, to me, there's still categories. There's still like, if I have one thing that I'm doing professionally, I still will do something athletically and I don't think they compete and I'll still have, you know, family doesn't mess with any of those things. So I, you know, I, I have one professional thing that I'm doing right now. And when I had three, I was like, that's too many. I got it. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a nice dream to think someone will drop out of the sky and say, Josh, we'll give you a million dollars to build this piece of art in this place. But it, you know, the way lucky things like that happen is you work very hard. That's, mm. that's my experience. So how do you now know that leadership is your one thing professionally? Well, that's from emotional awareness and knowing what makes me feel good. And it, it's, I can tell you it comes from my coaching clients when they respond and they get when, when they're like blown away and they, they think, I mean, they tell me, I had no idea that I could do anything like this. I will never go back to the way I did it before. 
or when I'm teaching, a similar experience with more people. And when, like, right now, I was, you know, just before we got started, I was talking about how I was working on this invitation to go out for this event, and my shoulders hurt, and my back hurts because I've been sitting still, and that pain doesn't bother me. If someone, oh man, I just realized this a little while ago. Uh, a way I, I often put it is, if you, if you're a founder of a company and you care about it a lot, if you, you know, say that the venture capitalist or some big client is coming over, and the toilet gets stopped up. If no one is, if you don't, if there's no time to call a plumber, you're going to go in there and fix it. And so, whereas if you were an employee of the company and you were not the founder, and the toilet got stopped up, generally there's not enough money in the world to get you to go in there and clean a toilet. <laughs> so, what are you willing to clean the toilet for? And this is like, there's no question in my mind that I'll do whatever it takes to do what I'm working on right now. I love what I'm doing, and it's. It's really, I mean, it's knowing that I would, whatever happens, I'll, I will do what it takes. If, if it, it falls through the cracks, I'm going to do it. The other thing is just knowing what, like a project before this was an education startup that was more techy. And it was an education, which I liked more than this, my subway advertising business was in advertising. And that was my own invention. That was great. I love that. But it was in advertising and media. And that wasn't really my field. So that was you know, it checked off a few boxes, but it had a few unchecked boxes. And just in life, I've just had more and more checked boxes with each thing that I've worked on. Mm. I think it's so important for people to have that self-awareness and as they go through life to realize that, you know, you can, your thing can change and what you learn doing one thing will potentially lead to another and the skills you learn in that thing will help you with with the next thing. And I certainly found that when I transitioned from being an architect to being a, a coach and a, a trainer and a speaker. They're two very different things, but I found that one informed the other and led me to that. I just wanted to add to that. Yeah, you found that out and a lot of people never do. And I find that if you have three things and you're not sure which one is going to be your big life thing, and you think, what if I pick one, what if I later find out that it was two or three that I should have gone with? A lot of people never choose any of them because they are worried about the one that might get away. And since, I, since I've taught like hundreds of people through my entrepreneurship course, I've seen this happen many, many times. And I found the best way to find out which of the three or which of the many options available to you is the best one for you is to pick one. If, if it's obvious which one, go with it. But if it's not obvious, pick one and take it as far as you can. If it ends up being the one, great. If not, it will be the fastest one. Fast doing that one will be the fastest way to find out that another one you like more. It's you. You can never go wrong picking one and going with it. Mm. It's, it's yeah. At least then you're taking action. Not just that. It's if it was only taking action, I might still hedge. The thing is that you learn and grow, and you figure out what your passions are. And when you finish that one, you will. The reason you'll you'll leave that one is you've gotten everything out of it, and there's nothing left in it. Or the other one you start realizing the other one is so valuable that you can't let it go anymore. So you pick, say number two is actually the one that's best for you. If there was some secret omniscient way of knowing everything, number two, say that one was the best one, but you start doing number one. What will happen is that you'll take one as far as you can go. And at some point you'll reach the end of it. And because it's not what, it doesn't have as much as something else does. And you'll say, this, you know, I'm, I'm done this, but there's still left. I, I still have more in me. And you'll realize that, Number two, is start, it will start calling you. 
And you'll realize that the skills that you picked up doing number one, you'll realize that I could do this so much more in something else. Or oftentimes, if you had one, two, and three options on your mind, what happens is my students, a lot of times they'll see that they can, if they move ahead on one and they start realizing what they can do, they'll often realize something that they never even thought of consciously is on the back of their minds. And they'll say, you know, I've always wanted to do that one thing. And I, I never did it because I thought that it would, I thought I might embarrass myself or I thought people would laugh at me. So I didn't even mention it, even to myself. And then now that I realize that I can do it, I go and act on it. Like I, now I, I can act on it and I'm, I'm not going to be embarrassed because I realize that I can succeed at it. People think you have to just sit there and think. And if you just examine inside, you'll, you'll get to all these things. And that's a major component of it. But you have to do, in my experience, you have to act on it too. And that experience is irreplaceable. Speaking of acting on something and actually having that experience, that's something that I know you feel very strongly about when it comes to leadership. And I know you've written a book that's about to be released called Leadership Step-by-Step, Becoming the Person Others Follow. Tell me, what inspired the book? What inspired the book was mainly, I mean, the, 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 the seeds of it was that when I went to business school, business school is where I learned that there were classes in leadership. I didn't know that before. And I thought you had to be born with it. Either you're born with it or not, because everyone's seen all the leaders I knew were great at it, and the ones that weren't, weren't. And so I figured either you were or you weren't. And then, so that opened up a lot of things for me because I started learning about emotional awareness and social skills and things like that that I didn't really think about before. In physics, you don't really think about emotional awareness. It's not. There was no class in that in the physics department. And so I started learning and learning and learning. And then it, after a while, I started realizing that learning facts and listening to videos and watching lectures and doing MOOCs, that doesn't, that teaches you about leadership, but it doesn't teach you to lead. It doesn't, you, you can't lecture someone into being emotionally aware. You have to go out and risk, you have to take social and emotional risks, overcome them and develop the social and emotional skills, which only comes from doing things. So then I started realizing that there, there are other areas of life where we do teach and you do get this genuine, authentic expression of self and self-awareness and things like that and the first place i learned it was in acting that i saw these actors who were tremendously skilled at at, at uh expressing themselves and reading others and working with others and when i learned about how they learned it was through a set of exercises that starts with very simple basic stuff and then you learn and you learn you, you do more and more challenging exercises that build on them and eventually you get to very advanced stuff and after a while, I looked around and noticed, oh, that's how we teach musical instruments, too. That's how we teach improv. That's how we teach people how to dance. We start with footwork. That's how you teach people uh, how to play sports. You know, you start with the basics. And then you, you, when you've mastered a certain level, then you move up to the, an intermediate level. And when you've mastered that, you move up to the next level. And look at anyone who performs on Carnegie Hall stage or an athlete who plays at a very competitive level. They, they have great self-awareness and great openness. And mm. they've... They've tried and failed, but in ways that each time they learned was not, it was a little bit over the thing before. They you don't just say, okay, you played some scales, now go play in front of a state, in front of Carnegie Hall or on Carnegie Hall stage. The last time, you, the last thing you do before Carnegie Hall stage is like a slightly smaller, less prominent stage. Before that, a less, a smaller one. And you go all the way back until your first recital. And all these fields have this. In what I call an integrated, comprehensive progression of exercises. And they all are fields that have this 
active social, experiential, emotional, performance-based component. And leadership doesn't. And so it, it, it fell on me. Like I realized leadership needs it. If, we, if someone created that in leadership, that would transform the field. And that was when I felt compelled that I had to take what worked in these other fields and bring them into leadership. And I started doing that. And the, the results that I see are, are, are tremendous, that people, they start developing all these relationships with people around them, professional and personal, and it becomes much more comfortable. The people are comfortable sharing their vulnerability, vulnerabilities and their passions and what they care about. And when you act and you, when you get people to work on projects for the reasons that they wanted to in the first place, it becomes a meaningful project for them and they do it for their reasons, not for you, even though you get the benefits of your project getting done. Look, I know one thing that you're particularly passionate about teaching is how to speak with an authentic voice. Can you share why it's so important as a leader to be able to speak authentically? Yeah, it's that's one of my favorite exercises. Well, they're all my favorite exercises. When, when you're not speaking authentically, people can generally tell. And if, so if you're, if you're my leader and you're not authentic, it tells me that you're hiding something. And generally, I'm gonna, I, I know that you're, you have motivations for doing things. And if you're not sharing with me what those motivations are, I presume that it's something you don't want me to know for a reason. It might just be that you're shy or you're uncomfortable sharing it. But a lot of people don't, they're, they're not going to assume that. I mean, you're lucky if they do, but generally they're going to think, all right, she's not telling me something. It's probably not good for me or else she tell me. Mm. So they presume that you're, you're hiding something to, that, that if you knew about it, you, you wouldn't like it. So we're guarded. So we put up defenses. And so that means if you're trying to lead someone and they put up their defenses, then you don't know why they're, you can't motivate them with their motivations because that's generally what they protect. And all you're left with is things like, external incentives like you know you can offer them a bonus if they do it well and you can fire them if they don't do it well and that'll get that you can manage people that way you won't inspire people that way and so it it just limits your ability to influence people Mm. what does an authentic voice look like or sound like i mean the the best thing i can say are there are examples that i use in my class like for me muhammad ali is one of the great authentic speakers or um um, what's his name? Who played Mork? Uh, Robin Williams. Mm. And if you just if you go, if I mean, if you click around my site, you'll 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 see that I link to them. And also, just if you look on on YouTube, you can find videos of them speaking, and you'll see that they speak uninhibited, and you know, without that filter, it's 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 more like that voice inside your head, the your inner monologue that goes on going on goes on all the time. It kind of sounds more like that. And in fact, that's the exercise that I do is to speak that inner monologue. And most people, it takes practice. Oh, yeah. And I should say, to get there is takes a lot of practice. You can't, I don't know of anyone who can just do it. I mean, maybe they practiced earlier in their life and they can do it now. But like an actor who wants to appear natural on stage, it takes a long time to get past the protections that we build around us mm. to get to, you know, to be like De Niro or Streep or you know they take years and years to practice that so it's not simple it just looks that way can you take us through that exercise of how you get your students to um, become comfortable with their inner monologue yeah I'll, first i'm going to give you a little context so 
that exercise comes about uh, maybe a third of the way through the course. So by that time, you've done, you know, five or six or seven exercises. And there's an earlier exercise that's write your inner monologue. And so for a week, I tell people, have with you at all times a pen and paper. And a couple times a day, write down that voice inside your head. So not what you're thinking about, but the actual words. You know, the words might be, well, I don't know know what to write. What am I thinking right now? I can't really think as fast as I, I, I can't write as fast as I think. So how am I supposed to write this down? That kind of voice. A lot of people hear it all the time, but they don't really, they've never written it. And so writing it down the first couple of times is pretty hard because you, you can't get a grasp of it. And it's like drinking through a fire hose. You can't write as fast as you think. But after a week, you kind of get the hang of it. And it's only by doing it. It's very experiential. Only by doing it can you really do that. Can you pick up that voice? After you've done that exercise, there's a bunch more exercises that work with that inner voice in your, and how your mind thinks. And so by the time you get to the authentic voice exercise, you've done a lot of working with that. And this exercise, now you can, everyone, I recommend trying this because it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take any time. And it's kind of fun. It might be challenging if you haven't done the earlier exercises before, but anyone listening to this can do it. So the ex- exercise is simply to speak that voice as it goes on in your head. And it takes practice and you won't be able to do it perfectly because it's just really hard. But the more that you do it, the more that you can just speak. And, and I tell people, the first time you do it, if you're really uncomfortable, you know, go in your room by yourself where no one is and just face the wall and try it so no one else can hear you and you won't have to worry about, you know, telling your best friend that you hate them or something like that. Like, that's a fear that people have. <laughs> Could you do it, say, for example, walking around your house and going, where did I put my keys? I wonder if I should, maybe I should, should I have breakfast now or what should I have? Or should I, um, is it kind of like that? If you, like, if you ask exactly. yourself questions, oh, okay. Oh, the weather yeah, looks uh, nice today. I wonder what I should wear. Should I put those shoes on? <laughs> yeah. There's certain occasions where I, I, I enjoy doing it. For example, if I'm at a buffet, I, for some reason I'm like, oh, the potatoes look good. I think I'll have a couple of potatoes. Oh, I think I had too much. Yeah. Let's, I'm going to go on. <laughs> let me get some more green. I'll get some broccoli. The broccoli looks a little wilty though. Maybe not the broccoli. I'll have some kale. Yeah. Kale is good for you. I'll have a bunch of kale. Or when I'm waiting for luggage at the, uh, at the airport. Why does my bag never come out? Why does Aaron's bag come up for <laughs> mine? Oh, there's mine. Oh, I thought that was mine. It looked like mine, but it's not. Mine has two pockets on the outside and that has one pocket on the outside. Why did they, they came out crazy me, after me and now they get their thing first? What? <laughs> it's funny because it's, you think that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so Aaron's true. worried. Like if people could read their minds, they'd be embarrassed, but I think it would be more like, Oh, I'm just like everyone else. Everyone else thinks all this weird stuff too. Yeah. All right. So we stand in a room or we go about our business and we, and we say exactly what it is that we're thinking. That's the first, the first part. What's the next part? Yeah. And then, and then you keep practicing and then you work up to talking with friends that way. There's a passage in my book where I, I, it's a long quote from one of my students and she talks about how, or she wrote about how she was on spring break driving with a bunch of her friends, friends that she'd had for a long time. So she's, I don't know, somewhere around 20 years old. And it sounds like she's known these people for about 10 years. She's driving, it's at night, and she thinks they're all asleep. And so driving is another place where it works. You're like, should I turn left? Wait, do I want to go straight here or turn left? Or, uh, oh, crap, I didn't miss, I missed my turn. You know, you can do that. So she starts talking that way. And it turns out they weren't asleep. And they start hearing her talking. And they start talking back to her. And this is what happens. Every, almost everyone reports this, is that 
you start off and you realize that you can speak more authentically than you ever thought you could. And then the other people respond to you more authentically than you'd ever expect. And you realize that you're leading them. And by you breaking down this barrier of authenticity, then it enables them to. And then it gives you the skill that you can use forever. And you start picking up that everyone is another person. Like if you do this with your manager or your boss, you're going to be really freaked out at first because a lot of us see the manager and boss as a human being second and as a position on a corporate hierarchy first. Right. But when you do this exercise, it takes down that barrier and status becomes less important. And suddenly you become able to, actually, not suddenly, suddenly you develop a skill that when you practice it enough, you're able to transcend someone being above you in a hierarchy or being outside you in a hierarchy, or you want something from them. And instead you're just a human being talking to another human being. Now that's not like, a, it's not like you just boom, it, it takes time. Yeah. Because surely with your manager or your boss or an important client or whoever, surely you can't just monologue everything. Because what if you're feeling really nervous or if you're, if you think that they're, you know, there's something weird about them or you don't like them, surely you have to contain some of that monologue. Is that right? (laughs) This is what compelled me to make a course that was experiential is that I can tell you this all you want. I can tell you it forever. And it will never give you the experience of it actually happening. That's why there has to be this behavioral component. Why I did this exercise-based course and why, if it existed, I wouldn't have done it. It just doesn't exist. And the thing is, when you do this exercise with a friend for the first time, you'll you'll feel, wow, this is amazing. I didn't realize I could do this. I want to do it with a closer friend. And then you'll say, I want to do it with someone that's, you know, professor or, you know, and you'll feeling propels you and you know, people who do stuff like this, right? I mean, the reason I pick, the reason I pick Muhammad Ali in class is that he spoke very authentically in the middle, at the height of his career, when the U S government was pursuing him for not uh, registering for the draft to go fight in Vietnam. He had the, he was the best boxer, arguably the best boxer ever. And at the height of his career, he said, Oh, I, now I'm going to say I, I'm going to get in trouble. He, no Vietnam, no Viet Cong ever called me a nigger. And I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that because America is kind of weird about that. But he, that was speaking from the gut. It was a very authentic thing for him to say, which he then backed up by not registering. And they threatened to put him in jail. They took away his boxing license. They took away his, his, um, his um, passport. So he couldn't fight at the height of his career. And he has become one of the great statesmen because of this. I mean, he's a great boxer, but also well known for this. And he took the lead that Muhammad, uh, that Martin Luther King followed him to speak against Vietnam, even though uh, Martin Luther King opposed Vietnam long before. And Martin Luther King was influenced by Muhammad Ali, but Muhammad Ali was not a Nobel Prize winner at this time. He wasn't a statesman who had been to the White House, who had passed laws, who had, or had you know, influenced laws being passed and things like that. He was a boxer. It was his authentic voice that made him a leader. He spoke what everybody felt, not everybody, but you know, a, a good part of the country felt. And that is leadership. And that's very effective in influencing other people. Anyone can do that. When I, when I sign this exercise, before I sign it, I often ask my students, do you think you could do like that? Could you speak like Robin Williams does? Could you speak like, he, like um, Muhammad Ali speaks? And invariably they say, no. I can't, I can't imagine that. And then after they do the exercise, I ask them again. And most of the time they say, it would take a lot of practice, 
but I see the path to get there. Mm. What difference have you, you found that it's made in your life for you personally? Well, it's a natural thing. Like, um, if you look at the blurbs on the back of my book, there's like, it's Dan Pink, Seth Godin, Marshall Goldsmith, Francis Hesselbein. Uh, so these are people with like TED Talks that have been downloaded 10 million times or so. And I, I, I'll be honest, I do feel, I, I don't feel talking to them like I feel like I do talking to my little sister, which is much easier, but I can do it. And it's, you know, I was walking around my neighborhood and Malcolm Gladwell lives in my neighborhood and he was walking by and I spoke to him and we we're talking, I have a dialogue with him that I would not have been able to do had I not been able to speak in my authentic voice with someone, despite he must be the top person in leadership or business books right now. Mm. And I would do that otherwise. And so that gives me the confidence to behave how I want to and how to be, you know, another time I would have been like, Hey, I'm a big fan. I'd really love to be on your mailing list or something like that. And I'd like put him on a pedestal. Yeah. I do look up. I, I think his writing's amazing. And I'd love to learn how to write like that. But as a human being, he's just a human being like everybody else. This is a, almost a cliche, but if you keep putting people on pedestals, they can only look down on you. But if you keep treating them like people, then they'll treat you like a person back. I've always actually wondered what I would do if I saw a massive celebrity in a restaurant. Would I go up to mm -hmm. them? And I've, I've always thought to myself, what? I don't know what I would say. And it sounds like being able to really practice and practice this authentic voice would would help you in situations like that or if you're at a conference or wherever and you bump into someone who is really well known to really help you to connect with them instead of creating this sort of fan and and celebrity barrier yeah you when you you spoke on stage on a new york city comedy open mic night i did and now you had a bit of practice first you took a lesson or someone taught you something yes if i remember right if you hadn't had that, if, if someone just said, go, go cold without that preparation, would you have done it? Absolutely not. No way. Okay. So now you tell people it's an amazing experience. You can grow and learn a lot from it. Everyone should do it. Something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's more of a, yeah, face your fears to say yes, even though you're freaking out. So that little bit at the beginning, every, okay, the advice to tell people you should do it. That's what business school tells you. It's valuable to do something like that. What you also needed was here's step by step. There's the title of my book, right? Step by step, what to do to enable that. Like you, you talked about how I've written on my blog. I've written on my blog every day for six or seven years now. Actually, uh, I think January 29th will be the seventh anniversary. Wow. But I haven't missed today at all, <laughs> sixth anniversary. I, people have been telling me to write a blog before that, and I wanted to write a blog before that. What got me to write the blog was not knowing that I'd benefit from it, not wanting to do it. That was there for a long time. What actually got me doing it was my friend setting up the blog and telling me step by step, this is what you do. And now the first post, I'm not so proud of, but that's what got me started. And that's what I don't see in leadership education. I see it in how to play the piano. I see it in how to play basketball. I see it in how to act. You know, when you play the piano, you want to play your heart out. You want to speak through the music. You want to be, you want to be emotional. But when you start, they don't tell you. If someone said to you, play with feeling for your first time playing, that's totally meaningless. Mm. What they tell you is, look at these keys, 
put this finger on this key, then put this finger on that key, then put this finger on that key, and you do it this way, and that's your C major scale. And you don't know what a C major scale is, and you don't know anything. All you know is you're supposed to hit the keys in a certain order with certain fingers at a certain time. It's the opposite of authentic. It's the opposite of speaking emotional, of your emotions coming out. It's mechanical. It's robotic. And yet, if you keep doing it, something happens along the way where you master. You don't have to think about your fingers anymore. And then at a later stage, you don't have to think about your, your hands. And then you don't have to think about the music. And at a certain point, you feel sad and it comes out in your song. Or you feel happy and you play it differently than you ever did before. And you feel confident you play one way and you feel nervous you play another way. And you get this fluency. And I, I, I don't know. I know that this way works in fields that are active, social, emotional, expressive, and performance-based. And I don't know of any other way of doing it. Mm. So learn the basic steps first, and then you can learn to be truly authentic and to lead the most effective way possible. Josh, thank you so much for being such a phenomenal guest on the show this week. I really appreciate you sharing your gems of wisdom with us. Tell us more about where we can get your book from. And I also believe you have a workshop coming up in New York City. Is that correct? I do have a workshop coming up. So for people who are around New York City, then on February 4th from 9 a.m. to noon, I'm doing a session with Marshall Goldsmith, who's in my field. He's like top. I mean, he's he's been voted number one best thinker in leadership. He's had several number one bestsellers. And so we're doing a session together. Uh, he's been a major influence for me. And it's being organized through the Columbia Business School Alumni Club of New York. So if you go to cbsacny.org and look up for February 4th, and if you're in New York City, please come and you'll get a copy of my book. So the book you can get, I mean, it, it'll be available on Amazon on February 16th, and it's called Leadership Step-by-Step. Step. And I guess I, you, there's my webpage, my blog that I mentioned is I'm approaching 2,500 posts. And that's at joshuaspilodek.com. And then my courses, the course version of what I teach uh, is online. You can do it through the book. Or if you want a more structured uh, way of doing it that also has an online component where you interact with other people, then you can go to spodekacademy.com. And on Twitter, I'm Spodek. Awesome. I will put links to all of those things that you mentioned in the show notes so that people can find them easily. But thanks again, Josh, for being a guest on the show. You've been simply amazing. Thank you. And I've and credit to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off to go practice my inner monologue now. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> massive, massive thanks to Joshua Spodek for being such an amazing guest on the show this week. My challenge to you this week is to practice the internal monologue exercise. And I'm actually going to give it a go and maybe play some of it for you next week. I thought I might record myself as I'm going about my, I don't know, wandering around my apartment and, and recording my internal monologue for you so you can hear how I go. <laughs> so you can find out more about Joshua at joshuaspodek.com. That's Joshua Spodek, S-P-O-D-E-K.com. Or simply visit the show notes at thecmethod.com slash Joshua. And I'll put links in there to where you can register for his upcoming workshop and also uh, find a copy of his book. Alrighty, and that's all from me this week. I think I'm going to go take a nap and, and rest my voice or maybe have a, a soother lolly or something. I should be back to normal 
hopefully by tomorrow. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for spending some time with me today. Keep on being awesome and I'll talk to you next week. My name's Christina Canters and this has been Stand Out, Get Noticed.